listeners, it's Megan from A Decibel, and Stacy and I are thrilled to bring you a very special episode right on the heels of this extraordinary 2020 election. It might even be safe to say that we could all use some comic relief, especially after patiently awaiting the election results. In honor of Kamala Harris, the VP-elect, and all of our South Asian and Indian American friends, we are delighted to share this interview with comedian Rajiv Satayel, recorded before the pandemic. Enjoy listening, and we wish you a happy Diwali to you and all your loved ones. Support for this podcast is brought to you by Goat Rodeo, a creative audio agency in Washington, D.C. Goat Rodeo helps clients and partners create high-quality professional audio content, translating ideas to sound. Find them at GoatRodeoDC.com. I'm motivated by uh, getting people to laugh. Well, I don't think about getting laughs, I think about giving laughs. And I like people to laugh, that's a big thing for me, but I also like to give them a different perspective, something that they hadn't heard, they can't get somewhere else. From A Decibel Media, I'm Megan Rumler, and you're listening to A Decibel Voices, a podcast that features intimate conversations with Asian American trailblazers who all have one thing in common, unabashedly pursuing their dreams while transforming the fabric of this nation. From food to business to tech to the arts, this is Asian America, up close and personal. Today, we get to talk comedy. Comedic voices have long used humor to provide not only comic relief, but also is used as a way to engage audiences on difficult and often polarizing social and cultural issues like politics, racism, bigotry, and prejudice. Comedians can act as social commentators in society, helping us to examine and make sense of what's happening around us, sometimes forcing us, while making us laugh, to open our minds to different ways of thinking. It is said that sharp, thoughtful comedy is truth-telling sheathed in humor. One such comedian is Rajiv Satayal, a Los Angeles-based comic and host who has been featured on national media outlets like NBC, NPR, the Los Angeles Times, the New York Times, and the Wall Street Journal. Rajiv is here in Washington, D.C., performing his one-person stand-up comedy show about politics called The Man in the Middle. Rajiv Satayal, welcome to A Decibel Voices. It is great to be here, and you have a very good voice. <laughs> oh, thank you. you. You have a good voice even like off the mic, but when you get on the mic, there's a, like go into this really professional mode. <laughs> Not that you're oh. unprofessional off the mic, you know what I'm saying. <laughs> So, Rajiv, before we dive into The Man in the Middle show, I'm wondering if we can just talk a little bit about your background and childhood. Sure. So you were born in Hamilton, Ohio. That's right. In the mid-70s on March 7th. And this is really weird. My daughter and you share the same birthday. Wow. Best day of the year. There you go. <laughs> you get a wow from my dad. <laughs> my parents the, are here in the studio. Which I love. So your parents immigrated to America from India in the early 70s. Your mom was a teacher and your dad a salesman. And you've mentioned that your parents assimilated to America extremely well, and your dad hardly experienced any racism, which is the opposite of, of most immigrant stories like my own. Can you talk to me about just your childhood? And it sounds like it was very normal in, in middle America. It was really normal. And I think that's what's interesting, what's made it more challenging for me as a comedian, because I'm very careful to 
make broad generalizations. I try to, about a culture or, or a people or whatever, even though I do believe stereotypes are true, I think they are rooted in truth. But my friend PK, who's a comedian, he's uh, Korean, and he's got a great take on this because when I interviewed a bunch of comedians about racism and diversity and I was going to do a talk on it for corporate America, he said 51, not 99. So he goes, 51% of us can't drive, but don't assume that's 99% <laughs> of us. And it was just really funny, right? He's a comedian too. And he goes, no, he goes, that's generally true. He goes, I'll, I'll be the first to own it, but Asians <laughs> don't drive so well. He goes, but I drive really well. Right. You know, and he's talking about himself. He's like, I drive really well. So he goes, the assumption that most of us, but he goes, the problem is when you bring it down to an individual person. And I think that probably informed my childhood because there just was not a critical mass of Indians there. We probably had, uh, I think I mentioned in the show, 489 students. Almost all were white. There might have been maybe 10 to 12 black students. I think there were two Asians two Indians, and then maybe like three or four Latinos. And that's mm. it. And I don't think any Native Americans or other, right. no Eskimos. So <laughs> I'm making sure we don't leave anyone out. There are other people I'm sure I probably left out. But in that general uh, sense, you know, when I grew a mustache in third grade, they weren't like, oh, Indians are hairy. They're like, Rajiv is hairy, right? It wasn't mm. like nobody knew Indians well enough. And so I think it was a less sensitive time as well in many ways. And people were a little bit more open about asking where are you from, there was a doctor who just posted on Twitter that uh, he, he asked a student you know, uh, who had come in for care, where are you from? Now, I don't know the context. I don't know the tone. I wasn't there. But apparently the student reported him for hmm. a microaggression. And now he's wow. not seeing any students anymore because he and he went to Twitter to complain about it and said, you know, it's such an inoffensive question because he didn't say, what country are you from? Where are you from mm -hmm. is a very general. The student could have said Maryland. Right? right, he didn't have to say. I don't know what he was, uh, but right. I think that that time was a little bit simpler. And a lot of my friends, my brothers went through racism, and hmm. they're younger. Mm -hmm. but, and the, those are your fraternal, yeah, they're fraternal, fraternal twins. twins, yeah. But my parents did not go through it a lot. They uh, they had a couple of incidents of it, but not enough that it would dominate the narrative. That is so interesting because I feel like what your parents experience, kids pick up on it. I love the fact that almost this non-traditional immigrant experience helped shape really your lens on how you see the world, it's, it sounds like. Is that correct? It did, yeah. No, that's that's really perceptive, and it's a great question because I think it would, and what I mean uh, making it harder for me as a comedian is it's easier to typecast. It's easier to generalize. It's easier to do that, uh, jokes about ethnic groups in general. So I try to make sure the comedy is coming from a place, because I'm not conservative. I'm, pr I'm pretty liberal. I mean, in terms of I'm moderate, but I definitely lean left uh, out of the two. But that's not because oh, it's like like stick it to the white man. Or mm -hmm. I think when the show you saw, I, I'm very open about the fact that I don't have a bone to pick with white folks. That's mm -hmm. not our experience. My wife has a very different experience. She okay. grew up in a town, a small town in Texas, and right. she went through a lot of the stuff that you're describing. She experienced a lot of racism. They wrote Packy on the hotel that yep. they owned. And I said, that's pretty evolved for Texans to know Packy as a slur. Like, <laughs> give them some credit. Like, that's pretty good. I didn't know that word. I wouldn't have gotten it. I'd be like, they just spelled Pakistan short or they left off Stan. So, there might have been a Stan somewhere so else, great. maybe with someone's name. Do you bounce ideas, mm, yeah. um, material, you know, off of her so that you can get a different perspective? 
Yeah, she is very good at balancing me out, you know, and kind of making sure that it resonates. I mean, she's usually the first person to hear the material. As my parents were growing up, I mean, they heard a lot of what I would say around the house, and some of that would become material. And they always say for comedians, once you find your voice, then everything becomes material for you. So I think I think Hersha, my wife, is pretty pretty balanced in terms of her perspective of how she sees the world, whereas I probably believe I'm – I'm a cockeyed optimist. I believe the – best in people. What I really loved about seeing you last night was that you weaved identity of being American and Indian American into the material. Can you talk about how you walked that line, how you continued to walk that line, and how your heritage has influenced you? Yeah, I would say my heritage has influenced me a lot. If you come to a show, I'd say probably 30% of the hour or hour and a half as it was last night would be, you know, like tinged with some beigeness, right? There would be something that – because I remember when I did a reading of my first one-person show and I had about 15 people in my apartment and – I think at least half Indian, but there was a white woman there who was a director, and you know, she said, when you're talking about your dating life, you're talking about you know online dating and whatever else. She goes, I already know all this as a white woman and as a white person. She goes, I find it endlessly fascinating that your parents you know, did not have an arranged marriage, but that was a big thing. Talk to me more about arranged marriage. Talk to me more about the cultural aspect. She goes, because I can get that from you. I'm not, I can get all the other stuff from the white comics out there, the black comics right. out there, the Americanness of it. But the whole Indian side is completely different. And she said, that's where the room you really had people paying attention because they're not going to get that from most other sources. So mm-hmm. I want to be sure that the show is not an hour of just Indian jokes because then it feels like you're on the outside of an inside joke and right. that's kind of the worst place to be. So the show is definitely probably layered in the sense of if you're Indian, you probably get some part of it, mm-hmm. maybe uh, some of it at a deeper level. But I'd say that the show is, is written for everybody. And, I, and my director is white. So I wanted to make sure, like you mentioned about balance, like mm-hmm. my wife will sometimes balance it out. I wanted, I was very specific in my first one person show about dating. I'm an Indian man. I wanted a white woman to direct it because I wanted a female perspective and I wanted someone who was not a person of color. Were you funny as a kid? Yeah, I was. I, I've always been uh, interested in humor, but I became funny at the age of nine. There was uh, a kid in my class named Ryan Price at uh, Fairfield Central (laughs) Elementary, and he was the class clown. There's a part in Waiting for Guffman, the movie, where they ask Eugene Levy. They asked me if I was a class clown. I say, no, I wasn't. But I sat beside the class clown, and I studied him. (laughs) Just like this really funny way of saying, like, he's so nerdy the way that he says that. But I was like, gosh, I really want to – he got got laughs. He got attention. He was just – and I I like the way he made people feel. It wasn't about being the center of attention, which I generally am, and that's not a problem. But that's not why I do it. I do it because, you know, when you're entrusted, when you're standing on stage and you're making people laugh, that is a, that's a really powerful thing. And I think we forget that as comedians. Okay, so you graduated with a Bachelor of Science degree in materials engineering from the University of Cincinnati, but ended up spending six years as an advertising brand marketing executive for Procter & Gamble. First of all, what is materials engineering? (laughs) That's a great question. So materials engineering is sort of a bastardized form of engineering. Materials science and engineering, there's a scientific aspect and an engineering aspect to it because there's some theory involved. You generally are sitting in the middle, man in the middle, right? Middle of all the disciplines. So you've got polymers, uh, metals, composites, semiconductors, and ceramics. So I can't believe I could remember that. 
from so long ago. And each of these, uh, you know, when you're taking polymers, it's more of like a chemical engineering class. When you're taking semiconductors, it's more electrical engineering. So there's a whole kind of science, obviously, to it, but it's, it's what stuff is made of. Okay. And so that's really w what it is. And it, it's it's mapping those things, uh, atoms and periodic arrangement of, of, of atoms in space and all those sorts of things. Most of my classmates went into metallurgy. They went into steel making. So a lot of them in Ohio work at steel mills or like in, in that sort of thing, design, whatever. Some became civil engineers. Some became comedians. But <laughs> a lot of people, I was always interested in semiconductors. So I was going to be a wafer fabrication engineer at like, AMD or Intel or one of those places. That was my goal was okay. to move to the Silicon Valley. That oh. was my original, I mean, the new original goal. I had so many original goals, but that was one of them. After you made the decision from, you know, materials engineering to marketing and advertising at Procter & Gamble, then you made a leap to comedy. What did your parents think? Day one, they flipped out. I remember my dad just, you know, I think everybody saw it coming before I did. And he said, you're not thinking about becoming a full-time comedian because I left Fiji Water after 12 weeks. That is really true. I was only there for three months. And they had moved me out to California. Then they, they paid me to, to move back. They gave me a check to move back. And, uh, you know, they said, we're sorry it didn't work out, whatever, but here's, here's a check. And I remember standing in my, off, uh, my VP's office. She was my boss, Grace. And uh, she gracefully said to me, she goes, uh, what, what are you going to do? And I had the check in my hand, right? And so I don't want to lose it. I don't want to, you know, say something untoward. So I go, I don't know. She goes, don't worry. We're not going to take the check away from you. Like, it's, it's already cut. I mean, you, 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 could, you could be honest. I said, I think I'm going to stay here and be a comedian. And she goes, I think that's exactly what you should do. Your eyes light up when you talk about it. And I said, you know, not to get too deep, but I don't think God moved me to California just to move back to Ohio. That seems like that would be an odd move, right? So... I always wanted to do this, but I just didn't have the guts, I guess, to really go for it and quit my job and walk out because that is a really, really scary thing. Yeah, I remember how scary it was. So when people say, that's the aspect about me that people find the most compelling. I think of all things. That's a question I get. What was it like leaving your job? Because even though with all the ethnic stuff, because that's universal. I mean, almost everybody works. And the idea of walking out of corporate America and such a good job at like Procter & Gamble that invented brand management, leaving there and then being the brand manager of Fiji Water. These are really good jobs that are hard to get. Most comedians worked as like shoe salesmen or I had the brains but not the heart to do it. I love that you, um, you're not afraid to talk about, you know, vulnerability, being vulnerable um, and kind of leaning into that emotional space. It's uncomfortable, but I feel like once you admit to it, you know, it's like there's a relief of some sort. Not for my parents. They, uh, you know, Indians are not self-deprecating. So whenever I say anything negative about myself, my mom's like, you should be more like Donald Trump. He never says anything negative about himself, even if his world is falling apart. And he's just saying that he's uh, he, everything is great. But, I, you know, I find the stuff I find vulnerability the most interesting thing because comedians have to be a blend of vulnerable and confident. We're a bus driver up there. So if you get the sense that the bus driver doesn't know where he's going then everybody on the bus gets nervous. But with my shows, I think you get the sense that I, I'm confident, but I'm also going to open up and I'm going to share about myself because anybody can sit here and be like, I'm great, I'm awesome. Yeah, that's cool, fine, maybe you are, but I don't think that's very interesting. So where did you get the courage to go on, to forge ahead? I'd like to take credit, but I'd say it's uh, all God's will. I would say that uh, I generally think religion is garbage, but I think that spirituality is, uh, is really important. And it's like I say, I'm, I'm not religious, I'm spiritual. 
it's kind of like when women say I'm not mad, I'm just upset. But uh, <laughs> I think it's I'm not religious, but I'm spiritual. Um, I, you know, a lot of this is is luck, you know. And what I mean by that is I didn't have the, the balls, the guts, the nerve, the chutzpah to quit my job and just walk out. So I had to get to the point where I wasn't performing as well on the job twice because I moved to California. I left Fiji. My mom goes, you can't keep getting jobs and not doing them, which is a great way of framing it up. And, you know, I, I had this conversation with my manager at the time at P&G. And, you know, I, I was he goes, you know, I saw you go from being a leader and having a really strong point of view to just kind of being a facilitator and a manager like you don't speak up in meetings like your projects are falling behind. What's going on? He goes, I I hate to say this to you because he went to Harvard. And he goes, I know you have such a big ego about how intelligent you are. I will back that up by saying you probably have more gray matter than anybody on the floor. You're really smart. But he goes, what's going on with you? And so we go through a series of conversations about, like, is everything okay at home? Are you, or is everything fine? Are you going through anything? Then finally, like, after a few weeks, because I have to ask you a question. He's like, do you just not give a – and he said uh, – um, I'll say crap. But, you know, he said, do you just not give a crap? And I go, well, I can't sit here and tell my – one-up manager that I don't give a crap about my job. I'm going to get fired. I can't say that. And he goes, I think it's pretty obvious. Do you not give a crap? I go, yeah, I just don't care about selling soap. Who cares? Who cares? Who cares? Like, if we move some more cases of Tide, what difference does it make to me? What are we doing here? What are we doing here? This is dumb. Like, anybody with a brain can do my job. I want to go do a job that only I can do. And, yeah, he, uh, that was the beginning of the end, or the end of the beginning. We'll be right back after this word from our sponsors. This podcast is brought to you by our sponsors, 8 Media Group, a Washington, D.C. area video production company whose mission is to create, collaborate, and resonate. Find them at 8mediagroup.com. If you're just joining us, we've been talking with Rajiv Satayel, a Los Angeles-based comedian and host who has been nationally featured and has shared a stage with Jerry Seinfeld, Dave Chappelle, Tim Allen, Russell Peters, and Sebastian Maniscalco. Rajiv is also the creator of viral video, I Am Indian, a tribute to Indians' many contributions to business, science, the arts, and religious tolerance. The video has garnered an estimated 50 million views worldwide. Rajiv, congratulations on wrapping up not only your current show, The Man in the Middle, but also your third national stand-up comedy tour. Rajiv, during college, you interned on Capitol Hill for Republican Congressman Steve. Is it Chabot? Chabot, yes. Chabot. Mm-hmm. Is being in the nation's capital sort of like a homecoming? It really is. It was odd to walk the Cannon office building where I performed my show, The Man in the Middle, because I interned there 20 years ago, in, or, uh, well, 21 years ago, 1999. How do you feel the show went? I was really happy with it. Our goal was to get at least one Democrat and one Republican to tell a joke. And we got a Republican earlier in the day, uh, Pete Olson from Texas. So we want to give him a shout out for that. He delivered the joke very well. We were handing out jokes to to uh, senators and representatives all over the hill. And then we had a Democrat come, too, from New Jersey. And that was really fantastic. And he opened the show. So I read an article where you you authored you authored the article and you confessed that you didn't even want to write the show but that you believed this is the most important show that you've done. Why is that? I didn't want to write it because um, it's it could potentially offend people, right? And I'm 
someone who likes to poke and prod and stir the pot, but I'm also a host and I'm also someone who likes to bring people together. I wanted to make sure the show wasn't a rant because I think any, not anybody, but a lot of people can get up there and rant. In terms of the most important show that you've done, you know, as a comedic artist, and we talked earlier about um, truth-telling sheathed in humor, why did you feel that you were just compelled? I'd read, you know, you would wake up in the middle of the night and w write jokes, and you just had to get some things out of your head. What is that all about? I think it's a question of uh, when you when you write a show like this, you want to make sure it's funny, right? Most comedians in interviews are actually very thoughtful and not really – it's not a laugh riot the whole time because you're asking us to, like, peel the onion back. And so the core insight is rarely funny. It's the, it's the jokes around it that make it funny. So my big concern with the show, we were doing a reading of it at Pat Hazel's house, my director in Austin, Texas. Shout out to Pat. And when people were coming over for the first reading, and I was still reading the first couple of chapters of it, and I was referring to them as chapters, not even scenes at this point, I said to him, because he's a comic as well, I go, is it funny? That's my big question. I know it's thoughtful. I know it's insightful. I know it's poignant. And he goes, let's just make sure it's 100% human. That was really the thing. It needs to be human. He goes, I don't think you know how not to be funny on stage. He goes, I don't worry about it not being funny. He goes, it's going to be funny. And he turned out to be right. It is a funny show. And I think if people are going to watch a one-man show from a comedian, it has to be funny. And, uh, you know, there's no way to be like, I'm just going to do this, you know, 95-minute show and nobody's going to laugh. That's like, well, then why would we watch a comedian do a show if we're not going to laugh? So yeah. luckily there are a lot of laughs. But that was my concern with writing it is, is what's going on right now, is it really funny? And it's like, well – you know, the two groups of people that make the best humor, blacks and Jews, they are the most depressed people, and they make the best jokes. They've gone through more probably than anybody in the world. And, I mean, Jewish comedians and black comedians are consistently ranked up there with the best and for good reason. So you say, uh, you know, in terms of the kind of the need that required to put out a show like this, uh, you said this is all about my fellow Americans. What can you tell me more about that? Yeah, I think that, you know, it's important to my nationality is American. My ethnicity is Indian. Right. So I make a video called I am Indian. Well, I am Indian because my ethnicity is Indian. Wherever I go, I'm going to be an Indian. You could stop being an American. You could renounce your citizenship and you would no longer be an American citizen. But I don't think that you would be able to culturally divorce yourself from being an American. And. I'm about as American as it gets, you know, in terms of, and that's what my mom always found really funny, because your, your video went so viral, I am Indian, but she goes, you're, so, you're an all-American boy. Like, I listen to American music, watch American movies, American TV, and I would say that I'm pretty well-versed on all things America. And that was an important tribute for me to make a video called I Am American, because that's primarily what I am. So I need to declare that to bring Americans together. And I know people are offended when I talk about the president in the way that I do, but they're wrong, and there is a right and wrong, and they're wrong. And it's, it's up to me to point that out and at least be able to say to my grandkids someday, this is what I did. I don't want people to be like – if they're, they're, we're going to get those questions from the future generations. Mm -hmm. They're going to ask, what did you do? And if I'm like, well, I didn't want to offend people. I don't want to disappoint my friends. That's never a reason. Your parents taught you that. Just because everyone else is doing it, don't do it, right? You need to stand up for what's right. And 
I've always used my social capital for that reason. I was always fighting for kids that were picked on, people you know, against bullies, stuff like that, because for whatever reason, I wasn't picked on as a kid. I find that really odd, being a short, small, hairy Indian kid in an all-white school, practically, that's odd. But I would use my social capital to fight for what I thought was right, and I think that's what I'm doing now. So... I don't want to give too much away about the show because I want people to see the show by you know for themselves. Uh, but one of the things I really liked was the characters in the show. Um, without giving away too much, can you talk a little bit about that? It was I've never seen that, uh, and uh, I thought it was super unique and, a, and an interesting way to introduce the segments and, and segue. So can you touch on that a little bit? I think the idea, especially when you're delivering a serious message, is to make the context of it funny, right? So I was watching John Leguizamo's latest one-person show called Latin History for Morons. And he's singing, and he's dancing, and he has props, and he comes out as a professor. He does all this stuff. He's an extremely good performer. But he has to go that over the top because he's literally talking about rape and genocide. And if you're even going to say the words rape and genocide, there's such trigger words for people that you better have some singing and some dancing. And you got to make it light because that's a really heavy topic. So I don't go that heavy in my show. I'm able to not be as theatrical because I'm not as talented as John Leguizamo. I mean, the guy is an amazing singer. He's an amazing dancer. He's really great at that sort of stuff. I mean, I'm good at some of those aspects of things, but I'm not on, on his level. So, But I don't need to be because I'm not going that incendiary. I feel like the interviews I do about the show are a lot more incendiary than the show because people can turn off the interview. They can turn off a YouTube video. They can turn off a rant. When they're in the theater, they're there. They're captive. And so they came to your show. You owe it to them to not lay into them because they're there to watch a performance. They're there to watch something that's interesting to see and fun and all that sort of stuff. So you have to give them a show. You know, when people say we could just talk like you're talking to people in real life, not really. It's a performance and people are paying. They're not paying on a general basis to watch you speak to them at a bar or at a restaurant, right? They're paying to watch you put on a performance. And that's an important thing to, to always remember. Ultimately, what do you hope audience members leave feeling and thinking? I hope that people understand that both sides are American, liberal, conservative, Republican, Democrat. I don't think followers of the president are doing anything that's very American at all because you're propping up a dictator. He's somebody who has thrown aside the conventions of what it is for our institutions to function. And I think the left is really guilty uh, of helping bring him to power because we are looking at an overwoke society where people you can't ask people where they're from that's a crazy that's craziness and i think people are so sensitive that it's led to trump because i understand uh, when you know it, a lot of this is 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 an assertion of maleness and of whiteness and not all of it because not all of the supporters are white and male but it's a return to americana and this idea in the show, I talk about 1994 being these really halcyon days, or idyllic to use your word, you know, and I think a lot of us do feel that way. Like, even if we're people of color, you know, when women attack men and they're like, well, men are the cause of problems, I get triggered going, well, hold on a second. We kind of like built the world, all right? So not everything we did was terrible. I mean, there there is toxic masculinity and there are things that men do that are really terrible. But just to say, well, all men are bad, well, that's half the population. That's half the planet. 
So I don't think that we should say those sorts of things because there's also you can talk about what people do, but don't talk about what they are. So what I'm saying when your support for this president can be revoked, you can decide to see the light and not support him. But I'm not saying because you're white, because you're male, because you're straight. You, you are toxic or you're wrong. Or I think that's that's the sort of stuff that we would say about gays and about Jews and about blacks, that they're subhuman and their votes don't count and their voices don't matter. We said the exact same thing to women. And yet you're seeing the fight between Tulsi Gabbard and Hillary Clinton. You saw uh, the representative Katie Hill uh, resign for sexual indiscretion, indiscretion. So let's not, you know, one thing I learned from a woman in San Francisco, she said to me, there is no trait that is tied to gender, none. There is no trait. There aren't traits that women, yes, tend to be more nurturing. Men are physically stronger, sure. But you can't say that strength is a male trait. No, women are strong. Men are strong. People on the gender spectrum, wherever they are, are strong. So we have to get over that. And so at any point in time, I am hoping that people will realize that we are Americans and we have to come together. But going for someone who's overly left and overly right, that's the problem. So that's why my show right now is Balanced Left, because the people in power are in the right. But when Obama was president, I went after him. I went after the drone attacks and deportations and a lot of the things that I thought he could have done a better job of. And I think if Obama would have delivered on his actual promise, we never would have gotten Trump. But I'm still a, a fan of Barack Obama's, and I think he's the best president in my lifetime. But I think he did some pretty terrible things, and that's why we have Trump. So as we come to the end of our time together, I wanted to know, you know, could we talk about the craft of comedy just a little bit? Rajiv, can you define funny? Funny is what makes you laugh. That's it. That's the only short answer you're going to get out of me today. I know they're all long diatribes. That is really what it is because I have a very dark sense of humor, but I don't have a sick sense of humor. Uh, when things are sick, I'm like, that's sick. And I don't really want a commentary. That's sick. That's observational. But when things are dark, like goes up to the line, I find dark humor really funny. But funny is what makes you laugh. I mean, I uh, I laugh at things that aren't, that probably other people don't find very funny and, and vice versa. People will send it around a video. I'm like, I don't think that's funny at all. And not that I'm offended. I just I don't get the humor. But uh, I, I, I pride myself on getting why things are funny at least. Uh, I think there's very rarely that I'm going, oh, okay, I don't even understand. It's just like it's like people who voted for Trump. I understand why they did it. I'm not saying they're wholly wrong. Their existence is wholly wrong. But I think they're wrong about this. So then what makes something funny? What makes something funny? I always say that comedy speaks, humor listens, because comedy is an active an activity where you're trying to get a laugh or give a laugh, right? But humor is like a sense of humor. You're sensing it. You're taking it in, like your sense of mm. smell, your sense of taste. You're you're taking in humor, right? But what makes something funny? It's almost like there there is no completed catch. If you throw a ball, nobody catches it. It's a tree falling in a forest, right? No, nobody. Or what's the sound of one hand clapping? So if somebody's saying something funny and there's no one there to laugh, I don't think it is empirically funny. I mean, Deepak Chopra, someone I interviewed, talked about how actually there is no objective reality in the real sense that this pen feels like this pen because we have a tactile sense. But if if a bug is in the room. The bug may be colorblind or, or things are distorted and they're hearing things that are the, – the, the experience that a bug is having in the room is 100 percent different from what humans are having in the room. So it's not – it's almost you know things don't have a color or a scent until somebody is there to take it in. So it's very difficult to say what makes something intrinsically funny because what's funny to you may not be funny to me. That said, there are some things that I think are universally funny and they make everybody laugh. And I'm not really sure – 
Uh, I think Tignataro did a bit about how she was uh, on stage and, she, and then she moved a stool and the stool made a funny sound and everybody laughed. And she goes, well, that's ridiculous. I'm working this hard to write jokes and all I have to really do is move a stool around on stage. And so she does that on one of her t TV appearances. She just keeps moving a stool around until it's not funny and then it's funny again. So I think there are things that are like, the rule of three, you know, let's say things three, three guys walk into a bar and there's certain principles just like design. Straight lines look better than crooked lines. And there are things like that that are, are principles of design or principles of fashion, principles of music that sound better than other sounds. But that's also difficult to say because a scale in Indian music is different from the scale in Western music. It's literally a different scale. It's played on different instruments. So what sounds good to you may sound like a cacophony to me. Is today's comedy different than what it used to be? It is different, and some of that is evolving with the times, right? So if you look at something like Eddie Murphy Raw, which is the greatest stand-up set recorded, and I think almost all comedians would agree that it's in the top two, the other probably being Delirious by Eddie Murphy. There are a lot of jokes about gay people and stuff, and, you know, do they hold up? They, the, the jokes themselves don't hold up because we've evolved as a society, but it's still funny. That's what's interesting about that set because he's doing all the stuff about gays, woo, 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 and all this like overly the top, you know, over the top type stuff. But it's still funny. You're not allowed to laugh that anymore, but that stand-up set is still good. Now, you couldn't do those same jokes today. That's what's interesting. Like, but that's almost like saying the Beatles music is still great. But you couldn't make Beatles music now because it would feel dated, right? So it's almost something that resonates for all time. That said, I think that we have an overly woke culture. We have an overly – we have a culture where people are very sensitive. But that said, I mean, I perform at a lot of liberal places and I get a lot of laughs. I, I think it comes down to whether the audience senses if you're being good-natured or mean-spirited. If you're being mean-spirited, people can tell. People are very perceptive. But if you're being good-natured – People will still laugh. Rajiv, what motivates you and where do you get inspiration for your material? I'm motivated by uh, getting people to laugh. Well, I don't think about getting laughs. I think about giving laughs. And I like people to laugh. That's a big thing for me. But I also like to give them a different perspective, something that they hadn't heard. They can't get somewhere else. So that's what motivates me. I don't think it's certainly not money. I make a decent amount of money, but it's not money. It never was to me. I always wanted to have a good amount of money, but it's more important for me to do something that for me to do something that I love. I am Indian got 50 million, maybe it's 100 million views by now. It's a lot of views. So to some extent, you're like a, a rapper whose first album went platinum and you're always trying to get to that like little Nas X. He was on the shop LeBron show on HBO and a lot of the older folks were appreciative of the fact that he realized that he had that he has a number one song of all time. It, it was on the charts number one more than any other song in history. And he recognizes at a young age, he's like, I'm probably not going to be able to do that again. And somebody says, it's great that you realize that early because you're otherwise you're going to keep chasing that. So with everything that I do, you know, sometimes it is compared to I am Indian. Oh, you don't have as many views on this or whatever else. It's like if that's what motivated me, I would live in a constant state of misery. Right. But for me. It's almost like the pressure's off because most artists perform and they do they record records, they do comedy, they do whatever they're doing, but they, they, they're on their deathbed and they wonder if they actually made a difference, if anyone actually cared. And I had people write to me after I am Indian saying things like, Hey, you know, I came to this country from India 
And my kids did not want to even be Indian. They celebrated Christmas. They didn't celebrate Diwali. They always recoiled from embracing their Indian identity. They saw your video, and now they're proud to be Indian. I mean, dude, like, then you made it. You did it. You did it. That's what every artist wants. And so if I never do that again, I hope that I will, and I think that I will, because I think at every step you need to be asking, should I just quit? That's a, that's a, I always ask myself the, the, the question, like, in an argument, like, what if I'm just completely wrong about this? And Hassan Minhaj, my old roommate who has Patriot Act on Netflix, he goes, that really resonated me when you said that. He goes, every now and then in an argument, I just put everything down. I go, what if I'm just completely wrong? And it's important to ask yourself that question. Should I quit? And I ask uh, my friends and my family that question because the reaction you want is to a person from all 50 people was like, wait, what? what? Why would you quit? That's what you want. Because if people are like, oh, well, you know, then you're like, oh, shoot, I think I should quit. My parents were like, you still have more to give. You have more to say. You can top I am Indian. You can do something bigger. You can do something better even though it is that. So I think I'm motivated by – things resonating with people and, 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 and opening people's minds. And as an artist, that's what you want. It's not about the clicks. It's not about the views because I don't have, you know, that many on all my videos. I have several videos that have 100,000 views, but that's not what does it for me. For any emerging comedians that are listening, what advice would you give them? I've read or heard that it takes five years to know what you want to talk about, 10 years to find your voice, 15 years to be good, and 20 years to be great. That's a really long timeline because when I first got into this, if I would have heard that, and if you would have told me 13 years of living in Los Angeles or 14 years of living in Los Angeles, you won't really be on TV in a meaningful way. You won't really have done big film roles or even small film roles. I probably wouldn't have started. I would have been like, well, then why am I doing this if I'm not on TV? But then as you get into this, you realize that that's not the point. The point is to say things and speak your mind. I've been I don't think my parents would think that I've held back, but I really have held back. I've been coming a lot more outspoken because the hell with it. I mean, like, why? I don't have a boss. I don't. I can't get fired from anything. So what's the difference? Why not just go out and say what you really want to say? Because most people want to let it out, and that's what I got in terms of feedback from people. They're like, we still think they're like you're getting to become more and more of yourself, but and you're now at a point where you're as funny as you, off on stage as you were off stage. That's a challenge for a lot of people, but. You need to let it out even more. Be yourself even more. Lean into that even more. And that's really that's really the thing that I would tell all emerging comedians. It's going to take a while, uh, but realize that you should do what you really want to do because uh, I'm friends with this guy, Bill Grunfest. He founded the Comedy Cellar, arguably the greatest comedy club in the world, certainly one of the greatest comedy clubs in the world. And he said from the night that Jon Stewart stepped on stage, and he was the one who put Jon Stewart on stage, he wasn't funny at all but he knew what he wanted to talk about. Hmm. And so he bombed and he bombed and he bombed, just like Chris Rock. Jerry Seinfeld was the one who, who advocated for him. And he said, put him on stage. And the club bookers were like, why are you putting this guy Chris Rock on stage? He's not funny. Like, he's just ranting. He's just talking. He's just going on. But they knew what they wanted to talk about. And it took them a while to find their voice. But for most of us, it's the other way around. You learn how to give laughs or get laughs early, but it takes a while for you to go, yeah, but what am I really saying? And so I think be open to which one's easier for you. Like get in how you can get in. Like some of us, I had stage presence. That wasn't a problem. I was, I was very comfortable being on stage from, from the very beginning. That was never an issue. But it was, do you, and I got laughs pretty early too. That was not an issue. But it was, are you really, because Louis C.K., rest in peace, talks about how comedians do not, fear bombing. We fear being boring. We fear walking the room, people checking their phone. Because if you 
think about the times in my single days when I would talk to a woman at a bar. If the woman lashed out at you, you know, and said, get the hell out of my face. Like she's a bitch. Forget her, right? I mean, that was the you were just like that didn't hurt nearly as much as if a woman looked at her friend and kind of rolled her eyes or kind of nudged her friend and was like, "Let's get out of here." That hurt a lot more because you're like, "Oh, she seemed like a good person. She just wasn't interested in me." And there are times where you perform that a lot of comedians they laughed at the other comedians, but they're not laughing at me or they're tuned they tuned out. And that's what's been great about Man in the Middle. It's a long set, but people are not tuning out. And it's so hard to keep people's attention these days. It's so hard. They have their phones with them almost all the time. So I'd say to comedians out there, you have to go through that that time of discomfort where you can really just sit in that discomfort even if people are checking their phones or you walk the room or they leave. I had to go through that for my one, for my one person show for dating and for politics. I, I ran it in San Francisco to almost not even any last but no – no response, like 15, 20 minutes of nothingness. And I have to just talk. I just have to keep going. And then the debut performance, I killed. It went great. But you have to be comfortable just standing up there and losing the room. So ultimately, what is the power of comedy in our society and culture? The role of the comedian is that of the court jester. And, you know, you have a king and you had a court jester. And the court jester was the one who could whisper messages to the king without fear of retribution. And that's what comedians are. There is a point where we have to go too far. We have to cross the line because we're the ones doing that. And in Moneyball, the the manager of the Boston Red Sox says that to Brad Pitt's character. He says the first – person running into the wall will always get bloodied. And that's why it's important not to silence voices, especially people of color, women, trans, gay, etc. Because they're going to be saying things that are uncomfortable. You look at the racism and creatism that Ilan, Ilan Omar, I hope I'm pronouncing that right, has gone through. Some of the things she's saying I think are objectionably, uh, or obje- objectionably objectionable. Uh, I think that I don't agree with her on a lot of the things that she's saying. That said, she has a different point of view, and this is America, and you and she's representing a point of view that is in the minority, and she and Rashida Tlaib and the other members of the squad, I think, do go too far, but you need people who are going too far because the right's going too far, the left is going too far. You need leading voices out there of dissent because Colin Quinn and his his politics show, Red State, Blue State, so yeah, that's why I became a comedian, just to parrot back what society wants, right? Yeah, that, that's why I broke out of it. went to all this trouble just to tell you what you already know, and every comedian thought that was brilliant because they're just like, yeah, that's exactly why we become comedians. We want to make the room a little bit uncomfortable. Like, gosh, can you really say that? Because if you're attacking the comedian, you're not attacking the problem. You're attacking the messenger. You're killing the messenger. That's You need to be attacking the root cause of wealth inequality and racism and all the things that societies have. Comedians are only giving voice to that. Other artists, singers, dancers are giving voice to that. So if you're attacking the comedian or the singer or the dancer, the person putting on and calling attention to it, you're an idiot because they're the people who are calling out the problem. Don't attack them. You need to attack the root cause. Rajiv, where can people see the net, the show, The Man in the Middle? People can go to funnyindian.com. Yes, that is a real website, funnyindian.com. That will either redirect or contain links for all of the social media. I'm at funnyindian on all social media. But you can go to funnyindian.com. You'll have all the links to Instagram, Twitter. You'll learn about what do you bring to the table, which is my talk show. We're in production for season two. For the Tangent Show, which is my podcast. For The Man in the Middle, which is my tour. And so they will redirect and point you in the right direction. But that's And they'll point you in the right direction, not for my show, but you know how you should think as well. 
It has been such a pleasure to have you in the studio, Rajiv Satayel. Thank you for joining us. Really appreciate it. Thank you so much for having me on A Decibel. Rajiv Satayel is a Los Angeles-based comedian who performs regularly at all of the major Los Angeles comedy clubs and is the host and creator of the talk show, What Do You Bring to the Table?, that features interviews with notable Indian Americans like Hassan Minaj and Deepak Chopra and is currently in season two production. A Decibel Voices is hosted by me, Megan Rumler, and co-produced and edited by myself and Stacey Yu. All music is sourced royalty-free. Here's a special note to our listeners to make sure to check out our website at adecibel.com. That's A-D-E-C-I-B-E-L.com. There, you'll find extended interview excerpts that you won't want to miss, behind-the-scenes photos, and some pretty hysterical outtakes. Hey, it's Stacy here. Since we're a brand new podcast, we need your help. Send us your feedback. We want this podcast to be listener-centered and would love to hear from you. What do you like, not like, or wish you could hear more of? Is there an Asian-American trailblazer whom you want us to interview? Tell us what you think. Call or text us at 202-599-3318. Leave your full name, contact info, age, and where you're from. Messages are recorded, so who knows? Maybe you'll hear yourself on our show. Thanks for listening, and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.